Hey there, welcome back to Belly of the Beast Life Stories. I'm David All. We kicked off this third season of life with my first solo episode. In Beyond the Belly, episode number four, I examined Joe Biden's personal life and the luck he had growing up with a responsible biological father. That pattern of fatherfulness is so obvious in Joe's story. It continues through the life of his boys and now onto their boys. I wasn't so lucky, and neither were the men that are a part of this season of life, fatherlessness. Stay tuned for my personal belly story later on this season. Now, let's get on with it. Christian Long has an extraordinary life story that you need to hear. Wisdom for our soul, courage for your journey. This is a podcast on personal life stories, extraordinary life stories that illustrate the nature of personal transformation, a totally normal but scary and lonely stage of life. There was a change that forced us into the dark, gooey stage of life where we found our purpose, our golden thread unraveled at our feet. And we climbed up a new person, stitching a new story. This podcast has a clear purpose. We are on a mission to heal, inspire, and shape lives with extraordinary life stories. Stand with me today. Visit bellystory.com to share your story and become an enabler to keep the show 100% sacred, free of advertising and outside influence. This second episode, this extraordinary life story lived by Christian Long, has been a gift of wisdom and courage for me as I'm looking at myself in the mirror and seeing an even deeper reflection. Let me introduce you to my friend, Christian Long. I mean, the progress that I've made, I think on some level, is just showing up. So I think that's part of it. And right next to that, Maybe the only other progress I've really made is I'm starting to starting to acknowledge that it's not a trivia. <laughs> it's not a point of trivia uh, the way I've referred to my fathers. Uh, it's a it's a it's a thing that demands work to understand and and uh, let go of and and uh, and I feel like it's just beginning like. I don't know what 50 to 60 or 50 to 70 or 50 to whatever is going to allow, but I feel like the work begins now. The first thing that Christian said to me about his story was that it might not be a good fit for this season because he still feels the deep wound of fatherlessness. He's still working through it, noticing grief, questioning whether he can grieve at all. Hmm, I can relate. Christian's story really is an example of the tumble cycle that a young boy and man can go through and this insatiable hunger for fathering. His biological father was out of the picture by the time he was just two years old. A stepfather adopted him at the age of three, and Christian took his last name. He carried that name with him until the age of 30, when he went through a legal adult adoption with his mother's third husband. 
He once again changed his last name right down to the birth certificate, which he still uses today. Childhood with an adopted stepdad was confused by moments of behind-the-back connection to his biological side of the family and even a phone call with a man that would end up being his biological father. He never knew that he was talking to his dad, a wound that may have been avoidable with some honesty instead of a need to protect the son from the truth of his father's existence. In his early 20s and 40s, Christian's experience would involve a third and fourth stepfather and in between a reconnection to his biological father who had been simultaneously diagnosed with a life-threatening disease, Christian's quick forgiveness at the age of 25 has haunted him as both the right thing to do and also something too quickly rushed without proper reflection. There has been an unsettling ever since. Now a husband and fulfilling his own lifelong quest as a father to two children, Christian faced his own insecurities of abandonment and has come to realize that the pattern of fatherlessness must end. This is an extraordinary life story that you need to hear. Christian Long, welcome to Belly of the Beast Life Stories. I'm honored to be here with you, David. Christian, I'm interested in something that you've labeled a void in your life, something that you recognized early on when it comes to fathering in your life. And and you talk about the fact that you've had an abundance of fathers on one hand. You actually say that technically you have five fathers. You've been adopted multiple times. You're even reconnecting with your biological father. But there's a void in the sense of not having a dad in your life. Can you talk about that for us? Yeah, the the idea of a void feels fairly recent. I'm I'm 50 now, and and both my children are are middle school age, and so I think a lot about uh, my relationship with them, and and you know the privilege and. Um, you know, the unknowing of being a dad. And at the same time, in the last year or two, I've really begun, and I mean really begun, to think through what my assumptions are about about fatherhood. And the word dad is a, is a strange one to me. It's, it's the word my kids use, but it's a difficult word for me to use about, you know, the relationship of who raised me. And... Um, you know, so I think it's only recently that I'm trying to sense make what that what that could mean or what it might allow. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, the sort of technical idea of having five fathers. So you know, one of the the privileges of of that is one of them is my father-in-law, is my wife's father, and and while I don't think of him as a dad, I, I certainly think of him as central uh, to my life and our life. And uh, you know, I think growing up, uh, my second father. The word dad, I use the word dad in reference to him. So, hey, dad, and and would refer to him to other people as dad. Um, but the idea of, of daddy or dad seems incredibly intimate to me, and that's not how I felt growing up. So, I don't know if I used that word with him or if he, he um, in short, that I used the word dad. But um, it, it's, 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 I suppose on one level, the idea of father makes sense to me. 
and stepfather makes sense to me, and even being adopted twice sort of makes sense to me. But the idea of thinking of who was my dad and in sort of an intimate, emotional, um, close way is a moving target for me. And I think at certain times it's felt close, like within reach, but it's never really felt consistently true. I just had this thought of, I wonder how many of these men call you their son? I mean, you've been legally adopted by a few of them. You've changed your name to, to, to take their name in some cases. Yeah, I don't know. My biological father, I, I was aware of him till about the age of two. And I, I only have maybe two memories that I can even, I mean, I can see in my eyes. I don't have a photograph of he and I um, when I was a baby or a toddler. Uh, but I have one or two images where I'm pretty sure we were in the same space together. So when we met when I was 25, uh, from that moment on, I've always referred to him when we're together um, by his first name. And I've never, uh, when I refer to him like in a, in a separate conversation, ever used dad or father. It's always been my biological father. Like it's a... It's almost as if the phrase can't come out unless I add the word biological, because in some respects, it's the way that my instincts have kind of processed. You know, he's, he fits into biological father, but he's not a dad. Um, I've become very close with, with his family, which is now obviously my family, um, become incredibly close to a couple of members in, in his family. So I feel attachment and I feel connection and I feel uh, a sense of of deep care and, and love but it's almost as if the way I would feel love for a, a, a brother-in-law or an uncle it's it's like he fits more into an uncle role even though he wasn't an uncle and um, you know so as I think through like it's it's like it's it's not within reach for him to fit into the category of dad or that kind of more intimate side that um, child parent role. My second father, who I was with from the age of three until, oh gosh, uh, 1991. So I was 21. I put the phone down. I hung up on a conversation with him and haven't spoken to him since. So it's been nearly 30 years. Uh, so I guess <laughs> the 30-year anniversary of putting the phone down is coming up. He was growing up what I assumed dad meant. But what I didn't really understand until I had distance was that it was a broken relationship. Uh, he was he was not a healthy healthy man. Um, he demanded the adoption um, when he married my mother. So I was maybe two and a half at that time, three ish, and he had demanded um, he wouldn't get married unless he could adopt me. And on and on, for a number of years, I carried that story with pride that he wouldn't even marry my mother if he couldn't adopt me. What I learned later is that it was a negotiation. It was a hard play. It was a poker move. It was, I don't want his father in the picture. And so for a while, even though the relationship wasn't healthy, he was the only thing I really understood in terms of like a dad. And because he had adopted me and I was there at the wedding and I could picture as a three-year-old. And, you know, I didn't have another example like day-to-day -day practice. So I didn't know what, what love or safety or any of that. I, I just assumed his behavior was normal. 
Um, and at some point in time, it sort of began to dawn on me that he wasn't, um, he didn't adopt me because he was in love with this child. He adopted me to win in the relationship, to prevent my bi- biological father from being there. And this was years and years and years and years um, before I actually met my biological father. So it was more of like there was somebody <laughs> way in the back of my mind, but it wasn't like as I came to realize that about my second father, who I referred to as dad, I had his lax name, my uh, birth certificate had been changed. I grew up with him. Everybody that knew me knew him as my father. Um, but I didn't connect the dots back to my biological dad. It was just that those were very different stories, different paths, different lives. And it wasn't until much, much later that I started to make sense of, uh, not even make sense, I could connect those in some way. Christian, one of the events in your childhood that you raised with me as being very confusing to you was at one point, sort of your mom was taking you to your biological father's parents' house, uh, your grandparents, actually, and you were having a relationship with them. And, and even at one point, they put you on the phone with a man, a stranger. And you would later find out that it was your biological father, but you said, I wasn't told it was my dad. So I just answered like an innocent kid rather than a son. Can you talk to us about how maybe folks trying to protect you, right, sort of led to this confusion down the road? About once a year, I would get into the car with my mother I'm going to guess I was probably five-ish, four-ish when this began and went on for, I don't know, five or six years. We would drive uh, from Portland, Maine, where I spent most of my childhood in that area, to Brunswick. And Brunswick was about a half an hour away, so not a very long drive. We would, uh, I always had a feeling it sort of happened around the time we had to go grocery shopping or something like my mother made it very clear to me that it wasn't to share this trip when we got home. That My dad was not to know that we went and she wasn't stern, but I, I, I could read her. I could tell, um, you know, whatever was going to happen, I wasn't going to talk about it. And it didn't happen that often, once a year or so, but we would end up at this, uh, you know, really modest house uh, next to a high school, uh, next to a high school football field, actually. And my mother and I would arrive and We'd get out of the car and this older couple uh, would would come out of this house, kind of come down these concrete steps and across a small yard and to the chain link uh, fence gate. And it was very, it was they were very kind and and very welcoming. And my mother would, you know, there'd be small talk, a couple of minutes. I think to a kid it felt forever, but probably just a couple of minutes. And at some point in time, uh, the older woman who I called Mame would invite me in, and the gentleman's uh, I would refer to him as a pay. And my mother would, you know, get ready to get in the car. I'll be back in an hour or three, whatever she would say. And he would kind of, you know, shut the gate behind. I would be inside the house. And as soon as I arrived each, uh, every time, uh, there were fresh cookies. Like I, I think they were always chocolate chip. Um, it makes sense because I think they, they wanted to make sure I had something I was, uh, I'd feel good about. And I would sit at the kitchen, uh, table, a small little, kitchen table, like Formica, classic 1960s kind of uh, kitchen table and eat cookies. And this woman was wonderful. I mean, kind. She had an apron on, always had an apron on, an older 
uh, white hair, kind of curly and soft. And she would always just make me feel welcome as could be. I don't remember what we talked about, but I remember that she felt safe. And I would spend, you know, time in the house. There might've been a puzzle, but I don't remember any toys. We might've watched TV on occasion, um, but it wasn't a showy thing. It was more like just holding space. Like she would hold space for me and, and it wasn't long conversations. I was too young probably to be in one. Uh, and she was a pretty humble kind of old school grandmother. Um, what I didn't know at the time is that she was my biological grandmother and that uh, not only was Mame my grandmother, but Pepe out the yard was my grandfather. And, and every once in a while I'd go outside and rake leaves with him. And he wasn't a hugging, you know, cuddle, like put me in his lap kind of guy. He was more of utilitarian, like a worked with his hands kind of guy and did, met a few words. But, but you know, I still enjoyed being around him. I felt uh, safe around him. He was a big man with strong hands. and and uh, But I would spend most of the time inside. And there was one time... I must have been watching TV and uh, I was asked to come to the kitchen there. A phone had rang. I didn't pay attention to the phone ringing per se, but, but um, was asked to come in and, and the phone was had to be as one of those old phones, the long cord uh, you know, attached to the wall. And I would sit down at the table and, and a gentleman, a uh, man's voice um, said, hello. And is this Christian? And I said, yes. And, 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 and then we were on the phone for a couple of minutes and I don't remember all the questions, but, I feel like they were the kind of question you'd ask an eight-year-old, you know, what's your favorite TV show? Do you like pizza? You know, simple, simple things. I don't know that I answered much, but I remember being, um, trying to be polite and trying to, trying to answer the questions. I didn't know who I was talking to. It sort of felt like family, like if this was a distant cousin or uncle, but also I had no idea if it was family. I just, um, remember my grandmother standing against the kitchen counter and just kind of watching. And then she left the room. And I think she just wanted to give us space. Um, what I didn't know at that point uh, was that that was my father. And that was my biological father, Jerry. And as far as I know, it's the one time we spoke from, gosh, I must have been at two, two and a half when he moved out of the house and my mother was in a new relationship and getting engaged. And, and the adoption took place uh, you know, within the next year uh, as they, they were married. So it was from, you know, the one time I heard his voice from the age of two-ish till I was 25 uh, when I met him again and, and we were reunited, obviously, uh, quite a long time afterwards. You talk about anger. One of your quotes was, anger has been a constant ally my entire life. It may have come through as sarcasm or competition, sadness or loss, but it came out as anger. Can you talk to us about sort of your relationship with anger as it relates to fatherlessness? I think my second father uh, made it very clear at a young age that I was always a comment away from being in trouble. And trouble could be just, you know, sternness and, and, uh, letting him down. There was always this, uh, he was very clear, you've disappointed me. But right behind that was the threat of violence. And so it would start with, you've disappointed me. And even though he was my legal father, he had adopted me, and it was the only sort of dad figure that I really could picture, it, it was, a, it was a, a, always this sense of being on edge, uh, it took me a long time to realize that alcohol was a big part of that. Uh, I, I, I don't know much about his childhood, but I think he was a he was he was always on the edge of violence. 
And the way that I navigated that growing up was to placate. I think part of my, as an only child in that house, was to make sure my mother was safe and to kind of placate him. And the way that I would uh, deal with emotion, I think sarcasm became for me the only way that I could, I could push back. And so I learned to be very sarcastic. He was an incredibly sarcastic guy. So I think I modeled after him. It was also the way that I dodged how he would physically react. So I could, I could be physically safe. I could use sarcasm somehow, but I couldn't talk back. And there was a fine line between that. And I think what I've come to appreciate about that kid, that teenager, that young man is he was scared to death. Like I was petrified. I was scared at two in the morning because what I heard in my parents' bedroom and I wanted so desperately to stop what was going on and protect my mother. And, but I was scared to death to leave the room, scared to death. And I was scared of what he would do. He had a really, uh, a pretty, uh, kind of clever thing that he did is at the dining room table, we always had formal dinners. I think it was, I think they did that to give the appearance of like elegance and being refined, but, but it, uh, we'd sit at the dinner table, um, even on school nights, late eight 39, nine 30 at night on school nights. And he had this habit of, of hitting my knuckles under the table with the handle of a knife. So not the, the blade side, but the, the big heavy kind of, you know, art you you would grip and he would just strike my knuckles under the table and smile up above the table. And so that that for him was a very normal act. And it sort of borders on like, not a big deal because like I wasn't wearing bruises. But on the other hand, it was like, it was just constantly in that situation. So what I didn't recognize when I hit, uh, you know, being a teenager in high school and starting to drink and, you know, just looking for outlets the way any young person is, but also at that time really wanting to get out of that house. Any chance I could to spend the night at a friend's house, I did. Any party I could go to, I mean, anything I could do. And what I didn't realize is I had this combination of being incredibly scared, like really, really felt like things could go bad. And at the same time, I was developing an intense anger and intense violence. I got to college and all of a sudden my physical manhood caught up. I was slow to develop. So I was five foot three as a junior in high school and overnight was six foot by the end of that school year. So I went from being not even in puberty yet as a junior to, and being small and being frightened of my classmates and kind of learning to be cocky and, and sarcastic. And I was a good athlete, so I could sort of cover on that side. And then all of a sudden I, I had a physical body, like I had a grown man's body. I was taller by several inches than my, my dad. But I still was scared to death. Like I was at a, in a constant state of discomfort and also trying to protect my mother, but doing it in a very kind of a, uh, just through sarcasm or kind of one-liners or kind of, I don't know, I don't know. It sounds simplistic now that I said it out loud, but I think that's kind of where I operated. And I got to college and the combination of being out of the house and then in college at a fraternity, working at bars, uh, there was a real violence in me. Like, no fear of being hurt. Like for the first time in my life, I wanted to get hit. Like I wanted 
to engage. I remember a guy in college and we ended up in a stupid, uh, basically a street fight and he pulled a gun on me. And, and instead of panicking and running, I ran at him. Does that say if you're 21 years old and you're in a situation where you're causing a street fight and somebody pulls a gun on you, pulls a handgun on you, and your first instinct is to run at him? Like that is insane. And yet through a big chunk of my life, that was a very logical reaction. Like there was an intense anger. And so I think, you know, as I've gotten older and, and you know, married and in a career and raising kiddos and just trying to navigate, um, and I think that anger and intensity was always below the surface. And my, you know, girlfriend or my wife, my children were never at risk. But that anger plays out in other ways. It plays out in a willingness to burn the house down. And I don't mean like physically, but like nothing, everything could be lost in a blink of an eye and all you do is just move on. And so uh, whether it be a friendship or whether it be a working relationship or different times, you know, with, with my wife, like uh, would we be able to thrive and grow and stay together? I think that, that, anger and, and, and sort of near violence just simmered under the surface and played out in some ways that I learned to mask, but was incredibly detrimental to not only sort of what a, a normal healthy response would be in an argument or in a situation of stress, but also like inside, it just became a really not, uh, you know, it, it wasn't a place of growth for me. It was a, it was a place of being stuck. And so while I didn't take that violence out on people I cared about, that violence becomes passive, but just as detrimental in other ways. I'd like for you to carry that thought through to a specific experience that you described to me as a rock bottom moment when you moved out of the house, when you were reconsidering your marriage, and you said that it was the most isolated that you had ever felt. And it wasn't so much a concern around divorce, right? You just said burning down the house and getting out of the relationship is not hard for you to do. But it was more a pain of your children not needing you. And it was your father, the responsible father in you, that pulled you back in. Yeah, that's uh, that's a difficult time to fully uh, feel and know. There's a part of me that can kind of just quickly kind of categorize it in the same way that I can count the number of marriages my mother had or count the number of fathers. So I can sort of count that as a difficult moment. And, uh, you know, moving out was in the moment an act like a defensive, uh, a defensive posture. We were in a really difficult situation as husband and wife and, and, uh, I'm certain in hindsight, there were a lot of ways for that um, that moment to unfold. But for me, it was it was an all or nothing. There wasn't there wasn't gray. And um, you know, I think in terms of self-preservation, uh, when I moved out, it was it was a preparing to walk away forever from everything. And so my kiddos were, gosh, what were, I don't know, four and six, five and seven. Um, young enough to not get what mom and dad, you know, what marriage is. Old enough to recognize that, uh, you know, dad was out of the house. And I lived, I don't know, six blocks away, had an apartment. 
And for a couple of days, the, the, um, the energy, like the anger, the, the self-preservation, the embarrassment, the, the, the fear, like all of those emotions, uh, provided enough insulation and enough energy that it was like, fuck it, like just going to move forward. Um, you know, and they're, I'm sure that's pretty typical. You're in a tough situation. Just got to make the next move, you know, get up the next day, go to work kind of thing. But there was a real belief that there was a hard line in the sand and there was no going back. Uh, you know, I, th- I think my, my wife and I, um, you know, I came back a couple of months later and we, we, um, we began to heal not fully healed, but began to heal and, and made a choice to come back together and kind of restart our marriage. And I'm incredibly grateful that we did. I, I, I don't know what would have happened if there weren't kids. Like, I'm not sure I would have thought that I deserved to move back in or that she needed me or that my pride and ego would kind of settle back down to ask to come back. So the, the, the really, really primal um, experience that I had during that time. And it was complicated by, you know, being a male and uh, my career and my sense of how I was perceived. Um, I was uh, feeling that being with somebody else was the right answer. And so I was, all that was muddied. None of it I'm proud of now, but at the time it felt, these felt like logical, like things to do dealing with. And and the two primal things was just this deep, deep fear that my kids, I would never see them again. I would never see them again. And the other side of it was just utter loneliness. Uh, I had prepared my whole life to be alone. We had moved a lot. So I was often a new kid and didn't assume there would be friends at the next school. I had been pretty nomadic as a young adult. Um, I just, uh, you know, felt on one level that intellectually, I could go out on my own, but in, but deep, deep, deep down sitting in that apartment for a couple of months, it was, uh, it was as close to breaking as I've ever felt. And it was complicated because my pride and ego were sending, you know, messages like you can handle this or you're not totally in the wrong, but inside was a, was a fear. And I think the connection for me is that my kids were my salvation. They were, when I wasn't sure about me, I wasn't sure about my career, my skills. I wasn't sure about my marriage, whether I was lovable or could love in return. Uh, my kids, even at a young age, were my, were my salvation. That being a father, being a dad, being papa, I used to uh, refer to myself as Papa, and that's what they used to call me when they were little guys. That that was like the one bit of daylight. And when I moved out of the house and I began to really wrestle with choices I had made and wrestle with choices my wife and I had made together and coming home, um, it was, it was you know, I, I think without it being like depression, like a medical designation, it was being as close to darkness as there was. And the impossible thing was, is that I, you know, coming home didn't mean that they or my wife would be there. Like time could pass and they could move on. Uh, Even if I'm in the house, it doesn't necessarily mean that I was deserving of being in the house. And so it was a, it was a frightening 
uh, cold, um, hard to name place. And I think had I not been a father, I, I don't know that my wife would have brought me back. I don't know that I would have sought to go back. And I also think that I wouldn't have begun to understood, understand, excuse me, what fatherhood meant to me if it hadn't been for that moment. Because I think I could have easily seen being a dad, a papa, my kiddos, as just being this kind of beautiful part of life. But I wouldn't have understood that it was it was connected to something that was going to take decades after that, years after that, to start to make sense of. That was I th- probably, as painful it was, probably the beginning of starting to make sense of like, why is this relationship with my kids so confusing and so beautiful and so complicated and so deep? And I think at the time, I just thought that's what dads were supposed to feel like, even though my fathers weren't that way. But I felt like that's what you were supposed to feel like. And I think the truth was my kids were... They became for me the path to understood, understand what I didn't have words for, even in my 30s, even in my early 40s. Christian, let's take a break and come right back. I love the medium of podcasting. The fact that I can tell a story and it'll reach tens of thousands of people and do its part to help permanently shape the narrative is satisfying. Just to put the distribution potential of podcasting into context. Some of you know my story. That I've organized over 40 in-person storytelling events in my life. Those events ranged in size. And if we average 150 people per event, that means about 6,000 folks have experienced one of the stories that I put forth to the world. But already... In less than one year, we're near 10,000 unique listeners on around 30 episodes of this podcast. When folks find one episode, they tend to listen to five more. I can certainly keep going on my end, but it's a lot more fun to do things as a team. We get to celebrate our wins together, and you get to shape our show with me. Stand with me to heal, inspire, and shape lives with extraordinary stories. Visit bellystory.com right now to be an enabler of this show. For just a few bucks a month, you'll be a part of the bigger picture. Visit bellystory.com and sign up with your credit card to enable this show. Let's keep this space sacred. Let's keep the advertisers and influencers out of our journey. We're back with Christian Long. Christian's story of fatherlessness is one of having an abundance of fathers, stepfathers and fathers-in-laws and biological father, but no dads. And we were just talking to you. We sort of ended with you telling us about how this moment with your own family helped you start to realize that fatherlessness, this void had been the cause, the root cause of so much of your challenges in your life. One of the quotes is you say, I, I, I made a choice to come back. The desire to be a father to the kids was what saved you from leaving. And you also talk about surrendering in waves. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I've my wife and I were talking this week about that moment. We we're sitting in a car 
um, even years later, still trying to make sense of that moment for both of us. And I continue to try to sense make the choices we made and what it was like to, to move out of the house, what it was like to know my kids were a couple blocks away, but I wasn't around. Um, and to imagine um, the possibility of, of not living in the same house as, as either of them. My wife and I made the decision to come back together. Uh, it was it was risky, I think, for both of us. I think, uh, you know, she was going to have to have some faith that she could trust. I was going to have to have some faith that uh, that we were meant to work this out together. But what I was also feeling, and, and what you referenced, is this core, core belief that if there hadn't been kids, I don't think there would have been a way back. I don't think for my wife... I would have been enough to bring back. And I don't think I would have felt like there was a place to go back to. The kids for me were a lifeline. They were salvation. They were young enough to not really know what was going on. So when I saw them and put them to bed a couple months later, you know, is now living back in the house. Uh, I didn't have a sense that they knew the weight of what was going on at the same time. They were old enough to be aware. You know, dad traveled a lot for work. Dad was suddenly living down the street. They were visiting, spending the night on occasion. And so it was a it was a raw period because I didn't know what they would remember. I didn't know if anything had been lost. But what I felt deep, deep, deep is that those kids were the way back. That my wife and I, our relationship was possible because those kids would bring us back together as a family. And, you know, I think, you know, at the time I saw that more on the surface. I mean, emotion and, and love and, and missing and depression and, and stress and all of that. But I wasn't connecting that to my experience as a kid growing up or me as a papa, as a dad, as a father, I wasn't connecting that to what I felt as a child and an adult child to somebody called father. And in the last couple of years, it's, I can't unthink those connections. And so I, uh, I think my willingness to take very seriously the, the possibility of not continuing in this marriage, um, was certainly related to choices my wife and I were making and how we were feeling about one another. But I think part of it was a sense that marriage isn't meant to last and families aren't meant to stay together. And who you grew up with is initially who you return and visit over the holidays years later. Even names. I mean, my last name had changed multiple times over the course of my life. And I sort of took all that for granted, but I hadn't done any work to make sense of why I thought that was normal. And my kids in, in, you know, both in simple and profound ways gave me something that would have been impossible otherwise. And that is a, a, a difficult, <laughs> it isn't a natural state, but it is a, and so I mean that in the sense of difficult, but gave me and still give me a sense that if I keep coming back, they will be here. And if I keep coming back and they continue to be here, 
then my wife and I can continue to come back and we will both be here. And at some point down the line, I suppose we'll all be here. You wrote a series of poems around the birth of your daughter, Berkeley, who's 11 years old now. You call her Burks. And one of the poems that I particularly liked, and I'm going to link it up in the episode notes, it's called uh, Imagining. And you wrote it February 19th, 2009. And I'd like to read the last few sentences of that, the last few lines of prose. Papa, yes, little one, will you always go with me? Imagining. Yes, little one, always. Can you put that in the context for us of what you just talked about, of making this choice to come back to fatherhood, of of your role as a father, and even think about your own children today? You know that feeling right before you cry, like you can feel your chest? Um, I, <laughs> you were in the second line of that, and I started to feel my chest. And I wrote that. Gosh, I mean, I don't know if she was just about ready to be born or had been around for a week or two, but it was right in that early stage. And I wrote it because I think I thought that's what it's supposed to be. And when I think about that poem now, I think uh, it's even bigger than that for me. Like I thought I wrote it for her, like that one day she would find it. It would be, she would know that I... I was there for her. But I think I was writing it because I needed to know I would be, that I would, I would, uh, that I would be in that relationship. It was like I needed this little one who was either not quite born or a couple of weeks old. I needed her to give me a place to come into. And I already had a boy, my son, at that time. So I already had this feeling of like what it meant to be a papa, what it meant to hold him, what it meant to watch him grow up and, you know, watch my my wife uh, going through pregnancy for the second time. And I could tell, but I think I, uh, it was like I didn't know how to exist until they arrived. And I still didn't know, even after my son arrived and I was so close to him. And after my daughter arrived and she was real. And I think I was a good dad. Like, I think I did a lot of dad things really well intuitively. But when I hear those words, I I think I'm asking her to give me life. But I'm framing it as if I'm going to be there when she needs me. Hmm. You really boiled it down for me on the phone. You said, it comes down to starting to let love replace the pain. Hmm. That word is still really hard for me. No, 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 that's not true. The word's easy. The feeling of it is hard. And I think I have uh, spent a lot of my life assuming and feeling 
that the people that I was meant to love or I was meant to feel their love were going to disappear. And it's on one level kind of irrational because my mom, even though I've been adopted twice through marriage, she's been there from the very beginning. I'm an only child. And so like at a really core part of me, that relationship's always been there. And, uh, you know, I've been married now almost 20 years. My kids are, you know, teenagers. And, you know, so more examples of people that have stayed around, even when, you know, family can be difficult at times. But the idea of, Feeling love is really, really confusing to me. Really confusing. I look at the kids and I still am in awe that my daughter really deeply loves me. And I'm still super intimidated when and feel a pain, like a breaking, when my son doesn't need his dad. You know, totally healthy. Like, you know, just an adolescent, a young man who needs space but it starts pulling at the threads and it's because the, the feeling of needing and wanting and trusting in that relationship is so raw. It's so hard. It's, and when it feels amazing, it still feels like a layer away. It's like, it's just within reach, but it isn't fully, uh, it's not pervasive. And so I feel this intensity for my kids and I, and I want to feel that intensity for family, my wife and my half-brother and, and others. But I sit here at 50 now and I'm thinking, damn it, I, like, I, like it's really a fundamentally difficult thing to feel, not to know, not to be intellectual about. Like the words come out. But there is a, is a, I don't know, there's, there's a gap there. And my kids, when I feel it the least, I keep going back to my kids. Like in them is the way. Not, I want to, and I don't want them to be, I don't want them to feel the weight of their dad needing them in that way. Because I don't want them to be burdened by that. But I'm convinced that that's, they are the reminder and they are the, the permission. Healing takes time. You talk about giving yourself grace and acknowledging that. You say, I imagine the years I've been silently swallowing the sense of being fatherless will demand as much time to heal. Yeah. Yeah, it, uh, it does feel like it's going to take time. I... I mean, the progress that I've made, I think, on some level is just showing up. So I think that's part of it. And right next to that, maybe the only other progress I've really made is I'm starting to starting to acknowledge that it's not a trivia. <laughs> it's not a point of trivia uh, the way I've referred to my fathers. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing that demands work to understand and and uh let go of and and uh and i feel like it's just beginning like i don't know what 50 to 60 or 50 to 70 or 50 to whatever is going to allow but i feel like the work begins now part of that work for you is convening a group of men around the 
United States and the world that meet virtually, of course, <laughs> given the coronavirus, to explore what it means to be a man this day and age. How to face moments of not knowing and face moments of uncertainty. How does that work help you understand your own story better? Hmm. You know, I, uh, I have the privilege of, of sitting down virtually with, with this group of really remarkable guys from all over, mid-20s to in their 70s. And uh, it would be so easy for it to be a conversation of what we do for a living or opinions about the world. But conversation after conversation, it's about really good men uh, choosing to speak truth about uh, what matters to them, like what deeply matters to them. And so on a regular basis, I am learning from really smart, thoughtful but incredibly unique men who are, they're willing to be like honest. They're willing to, to name the things that they want to sort of face or they want to uh, take time understanding. And so the privilege of, of hosting or, or uh, gathering them together, of course, is, uh, you know, one level, it's just affirming that they keep showing up. But what they provide for me over and over and over again is a reminder that this work is, is not ever done. That uh, being a grandfather is a whole different, it's a whole different uh, expedition that, um, you know, as I hear other men you know, enter the a marriage in their mid-20s and how they are trying to understand that privilege and the, and the, and the unknown of that. And we talk a lot about the, the relationships that we want to uh, put good into and the legacy, the question of, of, of legacy. And, uh, you know, it, 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 uh, it helps me not get stuck in the story I've been telling myself for decades. Like it helps me start to imagine a new way of, uh, of kind of putting things in place or making sense, making sense in terms of uh, being a dad, making sense in terms of like my responsibility in my community, making sense of, you know, the, uh, um, how to really honor my wife, um, you know, to what it means to, to ask a guy to tell a story and not try to conveniently fit it into mine, but just really try to understand how he sees the world around him and how the people in, in my life, um, it's not an all or nothing, but it is a enormous privilege and opportunity to, to, 
to be in their life and to have them in my life. And so I think that's what, um, what I find is that just to be in a space where good human beings will talk deeply about what guides them and what they're challenged by, it's also just a hell of a lot less lonely. <laughs> you know, you're not stuck in your, in your lane. So I keep showing up. I keep, uh, keep welcoming him back. Christian, let's take a break and we'll come back for some closing thoughts. Thanks to the enablers of this show, we are able to use our breaks in the show to share poems and something that inspires me with our listeners. Enablers are folks chipping in a few bucks a month at bellystory.com to be a part of this thing. I want to dedicate this poem by Langston Hughes to my friend, James Short, who is an enabler of our show. He's a movie producer in Los Angeles, telling meaningful stories through his work. Langston Hughes was really the first poet that I remember learning about, all the way back in fourth grade in Mr. Kingsborough's class. And now... For the first time living on the Solduck River in Washington, this poem sinks even deeper, speaking an ancient language to my soul. May it find yours as well. The Negro Speaks of Rivers by Langston Hughes I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood and human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. I bathed in the Euphrates when dawns were young. I built my hut near the Congo and it lulled me to sleep. I looked upon the Nile and raised the pyramids above it. I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans and I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. I've known rivers, ancient, dusky rivers. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. We're back with Christian Long with a complex story of fatherlessness with a, a man who's contemplating what it will mean to be a grandfather in his own life. Christian, I would like you to take this idea of identity head on for us as you're thinking about who you are today in this moment as a man, as a father, as someone who stood by his son, his, his daughter, and his wife, who made that choice, I would like you to discuss your identity, not about your last name, but tell me who you are today. I feel like a kid. Like, I think if I'm really, really conscious, I still feel like a kid. I don't look like a kid, but I feel like it. And, uh, and yet, I, yet it's, <laughs> it's a strange feeling because I, you know, I'm in my fifties now and I feel like I'm supposed to have so much of it sorted out. So I, I don't know if that's embarrassing or, or, uh, Awkward. That's part of the answer. And the other side of it is I feel like 
I've been gifted this moment to begin. I, I've been sober now for 10 months, so I'm over 10 months now. And what it has done for me is give me a chance to realize how long I've been medicating, how long I have not wanted to feel. And so I, I feel like I'm just beginning just beginning to feel and I wish I had started earlier because I think my sense of being a dad would be more developed I think I would have asked my birth father I would have actually asked him questions when we met but for 25 years I really haven't asked him anything and I think if I had been If I'd been able to ask him questions earlier, I would have a greater sense of who I am, that identity question you asked. But I think today I feel really, really fortunate that I've begun, that I'm not medicating, that I'm proud of the man that my daughter and son get to see, even when they make fun of me, even when they tease me, even when they kind of roll their eyes. I'm proud that they're rolling their eyes at me. And I feel like my wife and I have 20 years and we're beginning together. And that part of that is possible because I'm beginning, I'm beginning to finally acknowledge that I've hit pause on a lot of what it meant to grow, what it meant to trust, what it meant to uh, to go all in. And so I feel like now, like at this literal moment in time, 2020 and COVID of all times, I feel like it's like, fuck, like this is the moment. This is the moment. And it's not, the past story doesn't have to be the next story. So I don't know, identity, I think it's, uh, I think it's out in front of me. I think that's uh, what this moment represents for me is it's time to go lay claim. It's time to, to feel good. It's time to to say this is the life that was meant to happen. Breaking the pattern is a very difficult thing to do. It's certainly honorable. It's certainly noble. I recognize it. It's what these stories, this collection of stories of men, it's why they're so rare. Because men are expected to be something, and it's difficult to be that if you don't really know what that is. Your story, it's... Oh, man, it's really moved me. It, of course, has given me this dimension, this perspective into my own life story that I can only get when I'm listening to you tell yours. And I'm sure a lot of other men feel the same way, and a lot of mothers and grandmothers and grandfathers and siblings, sons and daughters. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. 
Appreciate you asking the questions, David. Appreciate you holding this space. You know, it is true. I know these rivers. I see the creek on our ranch flowing into the Solduck River. And I've gone to witness that Solduck merging into other rivers as it barrels with great purpose to our one ocean. Similarly, this podcast continues to fork out, taking you back upstream into your own pattern of transformation. Another drop of water in the creek of life. Stand with me. Tell us your belly story. Let me know that we're making an impact. Visit bellystory.com. I have no interest in shaping lives alone. It takes a small team to bring the highest quality podcast to wherever you are in the world. Milos Brochetta is our sound engineer. Artie Wu is our advisor and frequent guest on Beyond. We're working with folks on helping us to transcribe the stories and make episode notes. And we make fresh artwork uniquely special for this story. I created this podcast. I am responsible and accountable for all of it. But many folks contribute, and I'm very grateful to them. If you remain a listener, that's all I ever ask. It's always been my story to reach out, to reach you with the story of another. Thank you for listening. Thank you for rating our podcast on iTunes. Stay tuned. I'm working on some stories that you need to hear.